0: Please remain standing, if you will, and turn to Mark chapter 10 for the reading of the scriptures. Mark chapter 10. We're going to be looking at verses 35 to 45 this morning, but I want us to back up to verse 32 just to get a little bit more context. Mark 10, verse 32, And they were on the road going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking ahead of them. And they were amazed, and those who followed were afraid. And taking the twelve again, And they said to him, "'Grant us to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left, in your glory.' Jesus said to them, "'You do not know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink, or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized?' And they said to him, "'We're able.' And Jesus said to them, "'The cup that I drink you will drink, and with the baptism with which I am baptized you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or at my left is not mine to grant.' but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. When they heard it, they began to be indignant, and when the ten heard it, they began to be indignant at James and John. And Jesus called them to him and said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant." And whoever would be first among you must be slave of all, for even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word to us. We thank you for its clarity, we thank you for its sufficiency, and we thank you for... uh, what you do in and through it, that it is living and active and sharper than a double-edged sword. And so use it today, Lord, to pierce our hearts, to lift our hearts up to see you, to not only instruct our heads, but to transform us, that we would see Christ in his glory. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Please be seated. Well, as you might imagine, uh, we're not starting with the typical advent passage or story i wanted to do something this year uh, not for the sake of creativity that's always the challenge you know you 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 come up on this every year and it did kind of sneak up on us this year advent did we didn't have that break of a weekend in between thanksgiving and december like we normally do or often do and so uh, here it is and there's this challenge of how how do you how do you make it so we'll listen (laughs) We know the story, and so one of the challenges is the story kind of becomes romanticized. I mean, this is true for me at least. You know, you, you know it so well, you kind of like, okay, here we go again. We we know what's coming. If I read, uh, particularly from Luke, it, I mean, you can almost read it word for word with me without even looking at the page because we know it so well. And that's not to say that we don't need to know it so well or that we don't need to hear it. But what I want to do is help us not to detach that story at Bethlehem that we know so well from the overarching story of Scripture, that is, God save sinners, the story of redemption. And so this Advent season, I want us to look at, there, there's, this is not an exhaustive list, we have five uh, Advent sermons, and so we'll have five reasons They're only five reasons. They're not the five reasons. They're not the top five five reasons. They're just five of the reasons. Five of the reasons that I kind of zeroed in on, beginning today with the first reason that Emmanuel, God with us, came to die and to give his life as a ransom for many. Now, Mark 10.45, that verse that says that is also one that's familiar to us. And so, are, am I the only one? I mean, is it is it are you guys like me that like when you come to a passage of Scripture that you know so well that you kind of forget the context that it's given in? Like this one. I mean, you you many of you could probably recite Mark 10:45, but did did you remember the context in which Jesus said that? That that they were going on, you know, up to Jerusalem. He was going up to die. But even more than that, that James and John had just asked him this question. You know, you can almost hear the record scratch, right, when when you come to that. Give us whatever we ask. Had they been paying attention? Were they on another planet? What was this? That's the context in which Jesus goes into this discourse about Gentiles lording it over them, and it shall not be so among you. And then here, the Son of Man came to give his life as a ransom for many. And so I want us to look at the context so that we understand it. Another challenge, though, with this particular verse is the word ransom in English typically makes us think of what? Kidnapping, it makes us think of hostages, that's just where our minds go with the English word ransom. It's not a bad translation, it's just that's what that word makes us think of. So I want us also to consider what all that this word means. It certainly means ransom. It's not, again, a bad translation, but it means more than that. It's translated other ways in other passages like price paid or atonement or redemption. And so we have to kind of disassociate our limited use of the word ransom in the English to appreciate all that Jesus was saying in the, the word that he used in the original language and spoke to describe what he meant by giving his life as a ransom for many. Now, you may wonder why all of this focus on one word at the beginning here. Let me just say, I want us to make sure that we're on the right track as we go through this passage today, that we're, we've got our focus uh, in the right way from the very beginning. Because early in church history, there were those who propagated a, a really bad idea about this, uh, this, this thought of a ransom. Some put forth the idea that Jesus, in his death, paid a ransom to Satan for our release. This is not what happened. (laughs) Okay, just just want to be clear from the beginning in case you've ever heard that. Satan has certainly been referred to as the prince of this world, and that's fair. Scripture refers that to to him. Uh, But that does not speak to his ownership of this world. Or his power over this world. Satan is not infinite. Satan is not omnipotent. He doesn't possess all power. Our universe is not a yin and a yang with God and Satan as opposing equal forces. We've talked about this before, and sometimes those ideas kind of creep into our thinking, and so we begin to think that that's what the universe is and uh, you know this, this, two, this, this great battle. There, there is a battle being waged, but let's remember who Satan is. Satan is a created being. He is not all-powerful. And particularly, when Jesus died on the cross and rose from the dead, He did not pay a ransom, He crushed His head. There's a big difference in those two things. And so, understanding that from the beginning of this idea of ransom is important for us to be sure that we don't go off track. The ransom that we need to have in mind today as we consider this passage, and particularly as we consider the coming of Christ at Advent, is that He came to pay an atonement, a redemption. It's a payment in place of, in our place. That's what He did. Jesus paid the price for the Father's just and holy wrath against our sin. Jesus atoned for our sins. He paid the price. It is a substitutionary atonement. That is, it's in our place. He stepped in our place and did this, a price that we couldn't pay, he paid on our behalf. Now, when we talk about God's just and holy wrath in our own day and age, there are those who would levy uh, an, an unfair accusation that that means God is unloving. That a God that is holy and that a God who expresses wrath is somehow unloving. And that is simply not the case. Because God is holy, it's who he is, it's his character, he has to oppose sin. For him to tolerate sin would make him unholy. It isn't, God doesn't tolerate our sin. I mean, if you think of... Uh, you know, a lot of us have pools and you know, or you've had a pool and you're one of those people who, you know, that I've talked to, I'll never have a pool again. Uh, but if you've ever been around a pool, you know that it takes work. And, and there are times where things are right and times when things are wrong. And you, you long for those days when all the, everything's within balance, right? All the chemical levels are right and there's no leaves and you've got it all vacuumed out. You can do all of that work and then discover that your septic tank is leaking into your pool, okay? That is the image of what it would be like for God to tolerate our sin, okay? We're we're the septic tank. We're the ones who are tainted. We're the ones who are fallen. And so God doesn't, doesn't tolerate our sin. Our sin has to be dealt with, and this is tied to his holiness. Can you imagine a God who is not holy? Think of a God who who maybe was all-powerful but wasn't holy. In other words, he's not pure. What would that mean? Well, it would mean that he could have devious plans, devious motives. He could uh, uh, do things for his own pleasure in a way that was uh, uh, self-centered, in a sinful way. We simply couldn't trust a God who wasn't holy. And so it is a good thing that God is holy, that he's pure, that he's set apart. And it's because then that he is holy that we as sinners cannot approach him. And so something had to be done about our sin, and this is what Jesus came to do. He came to die to give his life as a ransom for many. Our sin, our taintedness needed to be dealt with, and Jesus did just that. That's why he came. He came to die, to atone for the holy wrath of God against us, so that we, like Abraham, by faith, might be counted righteous before him. And so keep these things in mind then, that Jesus came to cover us, to redeem us, to atone for us, and to be our substitute. Now, back to our passage. Jesus and his disciples, where are they going? They're going to Jerusalem. They've been traveling around, but this is different. This is coming up near the end. They're going to Jerusalem for the Passover, but as you know, it's, it's much more than that. They're going up for the passion of Christ. They're going for Christ to die. And in Mark ten thirty-two, we read that there is Jesus and the 12, but there's this larger group with them as well. And we don't have all of the details, but it's kind of interesting how... Mark words this, he says, they were amazed, and those who followed were afraid. Um, you kind of want to, you want some more information there. Like, what, what does this mean? Uh, whatever it means, there is this sense, this air of a, quite a mix of emotions that people were, were interpreting, understanding things very, very differently. Now, we have the, the perspective of being able to look back. And and all of our questions, or many of our questions, I should say, are answered. And sometimes we're a little hard on those who were in the present context. I don't know that we wouldn't have been, uh, had our own set of questions in this. Uh, Jesus is, uh, you know, he's going up to Jerusalem. And then, in, in this context of this fear, of this amazement, of this excitement, he tells them again why he's going up except here what we have when he takes the twelve aside is one of the clearest predictions of his death and what he's going to face that we have in any of the Gospels. And taking the twelve again, he began to tell them what, he was, what was going to happen to him, saying, "'See, we're going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles, and they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him, and after three days he will rise.'" You, you, you get the secret hidden meaning in all of this, right? There's no secret hidden meaning in all of this. There's, I mean, Jesus, this is not a parable. This is, Jesus isn't mixing words. He is, is about as clear as you can imagine of explaining to his disciples what is about to happen. And so it's now in that context, after he has said these things, that these two brothers come up with this request. Hey, Jesus, give us what we want. You know, where have you guys been? Now, often in the Gospels, we know that everything's not chronological or doesn't happen in immediately subsequent order, that sometimes there's time gaps and all that. But I think here all of this is chronological and there's really no time gap. This all happened in this order and pretty connected to each other. And the reason I would argue for that is because Matthew's gospel has these same three accounts in the same order together back to back in chapter 20 as well. We see headed to Jerusalem. We see the prediction of the death. We see this, this discourse to the disciples. And then we see them move on to Jericho in Matthew's gospel. So I think it did happen just as we're reading it. And so James and John and Matthew's gospel tells us their mother was with them as well, which makes it even a little more interesting. In fact, in Matthew's gospel, the mother does the talking. So they come together, the three of them, with this request. Now, there's much to, this has much to say about what's in their hearts. Jesus has just predicted his death. And this is the question you come up with? You know, what were they thinking? What is it that they really wanted? It also tells us what they heard and what they didn't hear. How easy it is for us to be in the presence of someone talking and not hear them. That happens. I don't know if that's ever happened to you, but it happens to me every Sunday. No, I'm kidding. It's possible (laughs) to, to be in the presence of people talking and not hear what they say. I think that was going on. But really, really, what this passage is, is a mirror for ourselves. This passage is a mirror for our own hearts. Now, those first two things we can kind of chuckle and laugh at and agree with. The last one, that kind of stings a little bit because we think to ourselves, I would never, I would never do what James and John did. I would never come up and say, Give me what I want. After Jesus just predicted his death, or maybe at any time. But let's get honest for a second. How many times have I doubted the goodness of God when life throws a curveball at me, thinking that he's out to get me or that he's forgotten me? How many times have I run to sinful patterns like anger or depression when people have disappointed me or hurt me? Now, I said anger and depression. Both of those things cannot be sinful, right? We're told, in our anger, do not sin. It is possible to have a righteous anger. It is possible to be depressed. The Psalms are clear of faith-filled despondency. So don't hear me say that anger is always sinful and depression is always sinful. My point in mentioning those two things is coming off the heels of Thanksgiving and being coming up to Christmas are these not things that present themselves for us to struggle with. What do we do? At, I mean, we... Think of how many memes you saw on Facebook, if you're on there this week, about fights with family and politics at Thanksgiving. Why does it happen? Why does that happen? Because people disappoint us and we get mad about it. That's what we do. Rather than looking with compassion, trying to be understanding, when you let me down, I'm gonna get mad at you. I'm gonna bow up. That's, that's where we go. Or we go to the, uh, the other side of the spectrum and we just kind of woe is me and the world is falling apart. How many times have I pretended to be serving God when I've been serving my own interests in hopes of having more honor or prestige? How many times have I sought the pleasure of material possession or the hopes of security and money instead of trusting in the one who has promised me heaven? We could go on with the list, could we not? I mean, we could add our own questions. You could plug yourself in these or you could have your own version of questions. But my point is is that even though We have the cross of Christ and his love poured out for us there. Even though we have his word available to us that instructs us in all truth, even though we have his spirit who abides in us, we too, like James and John and their mother, come up to our Savior and say, give me, give me, give me. Is that not true? That's why this passage is a mirror for our own souls. We have his word. We have the cross. We have his spirit in us, and yet we are just like them. They are us. We are them. And so they come to Jesus and, in essence, say, give me a blank check. Give me whatever I want, which is, of course, kind of bold. And then I think of the family dynamic, knowing that the mother was there. If you remember when James and John were called, they left their father tending the nets, and it says, and their servants. So this was a family that had a business. They had employees. This was a family of means, probably had some social status that went with it. And I wonder how that played into this whole dynamic. Now, Scripture is silent, and I don't want to go where Scripture is silent, but I do simply want to say that one of the other brothers ought to have corrected. One, One brother ought to have corrected the other. Or the mother should have corrected the sons. Or the sons should have corrected their mother. Or something should have happened here. But what happened was the three in almost as a cohort come to him with this claim. Give us what we want. We want to be in these positions of honor. They were all wrapped in it together. And so Jesus, before they clarify that, he says, what do you want me to do for you? And that's when they say we want these positions of honor. And, uh, and one thing we can say for them was they at least acknowledged Jesus was the Messiah. They at least acknowledged that he had a kingdom, that it was coming. They just wanted something that they shouldn't have wanted in the sense of in the wrong way that they wanted these positions of glory. But at least they acknowledged Jesus is the king. Now, Jesus had previously told them, just in the, in the last chapter of Mark, in, in 9.35, he said, if anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. But clearly, they missed it. They didn't get it. And that's exactly what Jesus tells them here in verse 38. You do not know what you're asking. Are you able to drink of the cup that I drink or be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? Jesus has these two images that these brothers would have understood. Cup and baptism, both tied in Old Testament Scripture to the judgment and wrath of God. I mentioned last week that in the the New Covenant, we have uh, the idea of of, uh, blessing and curse in the covenant itself. We always see that in covenant. There's blessing when the covenant's kept. There's curse when the covenant is broken. And here, Jesus uses two symbols, two images, that the brothers, again, would have clearly understood from Old Testament, well, what was their Bible at the time, passages of, of signifying God's wrath, but they're both the signs of the new covenant, cup and baptism. And so Jesus here sets these before them, but he's pointing them to the suffering, to the curse aspect, and saying, can you bear this? Are you ready for this? And you, 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 you almost expect them to be like, oh, you know, kind of back down. Okay, okay, we get it. But, but they didn't. They, they kind of stood up, said, we're ready for it. They're blinded by their own disillusion for glory and for power and for honor. Jesus, in essence, is saying to them, guys, you're looking for honor, for glory and power, and that isn't the way of my kingdom. You don't know what you're asking. And what he's pointing to, of course, is his own suffering, that he is going to suffer and die. What he had just told them about that they had missed in all of this And then in verse 39, after they agree that they are ready to drink of this cup, he tells them that they will indeed suffer. And we know that they both certainly did. But Jesus goes on very interestingly to talk from this this request for glory and honor to speak and give this discourse about how his kingdom works. The kingdom of, of God works differently than the kingdoms of this world. If you are new to the Christian faith or you, you didn't grow up in the church, you may not have, have, this may not have clicked for you yet of how opposite the kingdom of God is from the kingdom of this world. It's backwards. It's upside down. It's often mysteriously inverted. Jesus had already told the disciples that to be first, you have to be last. To be great, you have to be servant of all. We see in the gospel that the unworthy are the ones who get grace, that the weak are made strong, that the fo- it's foolishness to the world. We see this upside-down description of the kingdom of God versus the kingdom of this world. It's quite different. And Jesus explains that it's the worldly leaders who lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. If you have never been under such a boss, give thanks. <laughs> But my guess is from just those snickers there that you probably have experienced such a thing. To be under someone who likes to be called boss but doesn't have the courage or the wisdom to lead. Who likes to take credit for your successes but likes to put the blame on everyone below them. Who can't listen because they're constantly talking or thinking of what they're going to say next or who sees people as possessions or thinks saying thank you and giving appreciation is a sign of weakness. Have you ever worked for somebody like that? It is an understatement to say that it is mind-numbingly annoying. And this is what Jesus describes as, have nothing to do with it. This has no place in my kingdom. This has no place in Christ's church. This should not be so among you. Now, there's room to understand this in the world around us. You almost expect it. But there's, we don't give much room to expect it in the church, do we? And yet, it happens. It can creep in. And this is why I can say that we have to start with us. It's so easy to, to, to look out and look at kind of Monday morning quarterback and point to all of the mistakes everybody else makes. But the gospel always works this way. The gospel always starts with you. It always starts with you. And here is a perfect example. Jesus said, first take the log out of your own eye, and then you'll be able to get the speck out of your brothers. I used that with my two teenage daughters this weekend, or this past week, and it got turned into, I'm going to get the speck out of my eye so I can get the the log out of my sister's eye. That was what it helped. Interesting how that kind of gets flipped around. Jesus takes the gospel and he always, the gospel change always starts with me. It starts by me checking me, by me correcting me, by me seeing the sins in me. Not by me coming to you and correcting you and seeing the sins in you and pointing all of those things out. But what is it that we want to do? Jesus said, it shall not be so among you. You are first to be a servant. You were bought with a price. You are not your own. And so we ought to consider first the servanthood, uh, that we are to consider the needs of others more important than our own. The second thing is order. We ought not put ourselves first. This would have been a good sermon before Thanksgiving, but hey, there's plenty of time for application at Christmas, right? About putting ourselves first, because isn't that where a lot of the strife comes up when we get together with family? We want our own way. You, you do what to sweet potatoes? You do what to your grain? You eat it that way, and there's all this conflict and strife, right? Put other people's first. Die to yourself. Let it go. Let your preference. Let them have theirs. Let your stuff go. And then, third, death. We have been crucified with Christ. We're to be like him in laying down our lives for others. The kingdom of God is one in which the great ones will serve. The kingdom of God is where the great ones will die. That is what we're to be characterized. If you think about what James and John were asking, what was it? Be on the left, be on the right. Fast forward just a little bit over a week later. Where was Jesus? Hanging on a cross. Who was on his left and his right? Yeah, two people getting crucified. This is what they were really in essence asking for. And Jesus knew it. And so he said to them, are you ready to suffer? They didn't realize what they were asking. Of course, the good news is that the story doesn't end there. Jesus died as an atonement to redeem us, to buy us back. And he will one day return in glory to rule and to reign in his right place. And the good news is is that He will invite us into that rule and reign. So the suffering that we know now, the dying to the self, and the laying down our own preferences and so forth, will be transformed in a way that our desire will be only for the glory of Christ. And so all of that tension that we know now will be made right. It will be undone. Jesus said, whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. This uh, this, this Advent season, we celebrate the coming of the suffering servant, the one who came to suffer and to die, to lay down his life and to give it as a ransom for you and for me. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you. That even while we were sins, sinners, and even in our sin, Christ Jesus came to die for us. We thank you that you, in your great love, had the plan from the beginning to redeem for yourself a people who couldn't save themselves. And that you poured out your love upon us. And so as we think about Advent, and as we celebrate the coming of this season, the coming of our Savior, would you give our not only our minds the ability to remember and to think and dwell on these things, but would you give our heart a deep affection for the one who has come, the one who is the suffering servant, the one who came to die and to give his life as a ransom for many. Do this work in our hearts, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.